Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Romans 13, you'll see it's on page 1140 of the Church Bibles. We're reading the whole chapter. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we stand, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we've been uh, praying as we've been singing that you would instruct us, gracious Lord. We pray too, uh, as in the words of the song we've just been singing, that you would refresh our souls. We pray that one way and another you would do something very special as we open your word, that we would indeed hear you speaking to us and then by the power of your spirit, live lives that are significantly different for your praise and glory. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Peter has helpfully reminded us that we've been looking at the book of Romans since the beginning of September. You might now like to turn to the book of Romans and page 1140, Romans chapter 13. In fact, we will begin in chapter 12, so you might like to turn to page 1139. Uh, the other thing that uh, you might find helpful will be to dig out the, uh, the outline 
the, uh, the sermon outline, the talk outline that is uh, tucked inside your bundle as well. Uh, and then you'll be able to see where we're going in the next uh, 20, 25 minutes or so. Uh, most of you here will be old enough to remember the Oprah Winfrey show. Remember that? It was daytime television a few years ago, and as I only work one day a week, I was able to watch it. Um, uh, rest assured, I've not watched Oprah for ages, uh, not certainly since I've become the vicar here. No, I prefer deal or no deal now. Um, <laughs> anyway, Oprah used to have a section in the show called Spirit. Those of you who watched it will remember. Those of you who don't, I'll explain. It was the last five minutes at the end of the show with, with soft music and the lights dimmed. And Oprah would talk to a guest about the spiritual dimension of life. It was a time to think about being in touch with yourself, how to have times of quiet meditation, how to find yourself. It was all about looking inside and discovering how you feel about yourself, that kind of thing. The sort of thing that people talk about when they talk about spirituality. A guy I met fairly recently told me the other day that he was spiritual. He just came out with it. He knows I'm a vicar. He said, I'm spiritual. And when I asked him what he meant by that, he told me that he did a bit of yoga, that he believed that there was something beyond the universe. Spirituality to him was a sort of quiet thing that he did on his own. It certainly wasn't anything as we talked further that he could really explain to me. It wasn't very concrete. And that I find is fairly normal. The way most people speak speak about spirituality, it's a very slippery thing, like a bar of soap in the bath. You just can't get hold of it. It's nebulous. It means nothing very much really but that is certainly not the case when the bible talks about being spiritual look again with me at the verses that we looked at last week romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 page 1139 remember these verses if you were here last week you will verse 1 of romans 12 therefore i urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god This is your spiritual act of worship. Uh, Here as Christians, we're told to offer our bodies, our whole selves as a sacrifice to God. That's spiritual. But but still, what does it actually mean? What does it look like to be a a living sacrifice to God? What does uh, spiritual worship look like? Well, we don't have to guess. Because Paul spells out in the chapters that follow exactly what that will look like. And we discover, if we'd have read the rest of chapter 12, and certainly as we go into chapter 13 this week, we discover spirituality is all about living in the real world. It isn't nebulous and kind of out there or even in here. It's kind of every day. Christian spirituality is about living out real life in the nitty-gritty of everyday life and not least of all Christian spirituality is worked out in how we relate to one another yes how we relate to God but also how we relate to others in everyday life too and so as we turn to chapter 13 we learn what spiritual worship is and what it means to be a living sacrifice and first we discover if you're uh, still on with me on the handout the first point that we must be submissive citizens, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 13. Look at verse 1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Christians should be great citizens. We should be seen to be great citizens. Verse 6, paying our taxes and 
Verse 7, making national insurance contributions and being respectful to those in authority. That really matters. It is a significant part of working out what it means to be a living sacrifice. And it becomes very clear how much it matters when Christians don't live that out. Because if we start to fiddle our taxes and disobey the authorities, people quite rightly will be very quick to say to us, and you call yourself a Christian. You see, people know that we should be living that way. Instinctively, they know that. Having said that, it's not hard to imagine why the Christians in Rome might have been tempted not to respect the authorities. In Acts chapter, there's no need to turn it to, to it now, but in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we read that the Emperor Claudius ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And of course, you'll know if you know your history that under Nero, Jerusalem was burned down and Nero laid the blame on the Christians. So it is quite possible that the Christians in Rome were saying to themselves, the authorities are evil. We have a different Lord now. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not submitting to any earthly governors. Now, perhaps that's why Paul writes verse one, that we must submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Now, whatever the reason for Paul having to write these words, what he goes on to say is actually a great surprise. It would have been for them back then and it is for us today. Three times Paul tells us that the governing authorities have been established by God. He says it twice in verse 1 and again in verse 2. See, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which has been established by God. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted or established. Now, viewed through the eyes of a stable and fair political system, verses one and two seem quite reasonable. But I want to ask, what about Christians in Nigeria and southern Sudan and Syria and North Korea? And, well, we could go on and on. Are Christians in those situations expected to submit to the governing authorities? And can we really believe that God has established even the despotic monsters that have ruled this world from time to time? Well, Paul was thoroughly aware of those issues. As we've already considered, Paul was writing these words when the state was a totalitarian regime and thoroughly anti-Christian. The Roman Empire ruled the world. The Romans, for all the good they did, were cruel and vindictive. And not least of all, towards Jews and Christians, as I've already mentioned. Paul then didn't write these words wearing rose-coloured 21st century Western democratically and fairly elected spectacles, if you can have spectacles like that. Yet still he says in verse 1 that there is no authority that has not been established by God. Now please see what a remarkable statement this is of the sovereignty of God. We sung earlier, how great is our God? Well, he is part of the answer. He is so great, he reigns over all the earth, so much so that he is ultimately supreme in the appointment of any government. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? God is the supreme sovereign ruler over the mighty Roman Empire and the Chinese dynasties and the Kremlin and the White House. He is sovereign over Zimbabwe and the Sudan and Nigeria and Great Britain. Now, that is wonderfully reassuring, but it will raise questions in our minds. If God is the sovereign ruler of the world, why would he establish some of the monsters we see in our world today and have seen throughout history, the Caligulas and Herods and Neros and Domitians of 
New Testament times and the Hitlers, Stalins, Pol Pots, Mugabes and Kim Jong-uns of our time. And as Christians, do we have to obey those rulers? Of course, to say that God establishes the governing authorities doesn't mean that he approves of everything they do. Men are evil and corrupted by power, whether it be the obvious corruption of a Robert Mugabe or the bogus expense claims of one of our own MPs. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as Lord Acton famously said. So how should we respond to the authorities? Well, we read on and we'll see. First note that all governing authorities have been established by God to do two things. And I put those two things on the handout. All governing authorities have been established by God to firstly do good to Christians and secondly to punish evil. We see both those things in verse 4. You see it? For he, that is the governing authority, he is God's servant to do you good. To do you, Christians, good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. See the two things. There's why God has established any governing authority to do those two things, to do good to Christians and to punish evil. Now, Archbishop Cranmer understood this. Listen to uh, this prayer in the Book of Common Prayer communion service. Again, I've had it printed on the handout. Praying for the queen and her government, the, the prayer goes like this, that they may truly and impartially minister justice to the punishment of wickedness and vice and to the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. Two things the authority should do, punish evil and wrongdoing and pass laws and act in ways that maintain Christian truth and values. And we can see this even more in that three times in Romans 13, Paul says that the state has a ministry from God. It's actually the word that he uses, verse four. For he, that is the governing authority, he is God's servant. Again, at the end of that verse, he is God's servant. Exactly the same. And you'll see again the same in verse six. Three times we read it. And the first two times in verse four, the word for servant is the word minister and is exactly the same word used for a minister of the church. And that, I think, gives me the clinching principle for working out how I am to respond to the governing authorities. It is no different how we relate to church leaders The Bible tells us to obey our church leaders. But if I ask you to do anything that is against the teaching of the Bible, then you should not obey me, for at that moment I have gone beyond the authority given to me. It's the same principle here. The governing authorities have been established by God. They have been given a ministry by God, and that ministry is to punish evil and to promote an environment where the truth of the Christian gospel can flourish... And as soon as the government does the opposite, either promoting evil or demanding that I do things that are contrary to the gospel, then at that point I am no longer obliged to obey them. For at that point they've gone way beyond, far beyond the authority given to them. Let me put some meat on the bones. Now that the government has outrageously redefined marriage, who do they think they are that they can do that? An institution that God created back before time Now that the government has outrageously redefined marriage, should they ask me as a minister of the established church to marry same-sex couples, I will say no. Because at that point, the government has gone beyond their God-given authority. 
They've disobeyed God's word by passing a law that will not maintain the true religion and virtue, as Cranmer put it. And therefore, at that point, I'm not obliged to submit to them. Now, all that said, let's not lose sight of what is very straightforward here. We can always see the difficulties, but sometimes in dealing with the difficulties, we can forget what is easy, in a way. What is straightforward is here in verse 6, I am to pay my taxes. It's exactly what Jesus said when he said, pay to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So I'm to pay my, my taxes, verses six and seven. I am to be a good citizen who promotes peace and quiet in society as I honour and respect others. I am to obey the law of the land. And I've been thinking, where does this really, where does the rubber really hit the road? Well, I'm to obey the law of the land and that includes the speed limit. Oh, that might have got us. Everyone else does it, we say. It's not justification for disobeying the governing authorities. My motivation for living this is the gospel. Remember chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercy, live a life of worship to God. This is what it means to be spiritual. I'm being spiritual when I am driving at the right speed and paying my taxes and being a good citizen. Now I can get hold of that. And indeed, as we do that, it will have a very positive evangelistic impact on the world around us when we live that way. So firstly, in being spiritual, be submissive citizens. Secondly, be loving neighbours, verses 8 to 10. There are two obvious connections from verses 1 to 7 into this section. It's not just like a different section. It, it, It flows very obviously. First, Paul moves from the law of the land to the law of God. And secondly, Paul has just written in verse 7 that we should pay our debts and give to everyone what we owe. And then he writes, verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Uh, So these verses flow clearly on from the previous section. But there may be another reason why Paul feels he needs to write these words here when he's going to deal with God's law. If you've been here through the last term, you'll remember that right through this letter, Paul has been saying that we're not saved, we're not made right with God through keeping God's law. We're not under the law with regards to salvation, but we're under grace. We're not under the law with regards to sanctification, but led by the Spirit. Now, Paul has been teaching that sort of thing right through the first 12 chapters. But that said, it is crucial that we don't think that that means that we pay no attention to God's law. For as Christians, we should be loving and we should go on loving. We have, verse 8, the continuing debt to love one another. In other words, as Christians, we can never say we've loved enough. But what does it mean to love our neighbour? What will that look like? That's where the law is so crucial for us. Turn with me, if you will, uh, keep your finger or something in in, uh, Romans 13, but turn with me, if you will, to 2 John, verses uh, 5 and 6, page 1229 is the page number. And I think this relationship between the law um, and love will become a little clearer. Now, these are new verses to me. I was uh, listening to another preacher explain these uh, verses, and uh, I thought, yeah, that's very good. I've never seen that before. 2 John verses 5 and 6, 1, 2, 2, 9, and this is well worth noting. 2 John verse 5, 
And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, commandments, law. I'm not writing you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. You see what's going on here? As I go to the law, it says, love your neighbour. And when I go to love, it says, follow the commandments. Do you see, love and law are not mutually exclusive. They go together. But the law is not adequate for the Christian. The obligation of the law is by definition limited. It tells me to do things. It's limited. But the obligation of love is by definition unlimited. You can never love enough. Go on loving. Without God's law, the concept of love has no content. You go go and love people. How do I do that? Can't get hold of it, can you? It can, in that sense, become sentimental and not objective. But uh, without love, God's law is just a set of rigid principles. So you see, I need need law to put some bones on the idea of loving. And I need love to kind of make me not just a, a law keeper, but to go beyond that. Do you see how that works? Is that lovely how that works together? Have you seen that before? Now, so as we turn back to Romans 13, we see that it is love that is behind God's law. It is love that is the motivation for the law, and love is the way to live God's law. So Romans chapter 13, verse 9, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. You see, it's obvious when you start thinking about it. God's law tells me that I shouldn't commit adultery or murder or steal or covet. And the motivation behind that law is love. For when I love my neighbour, I won't commit adultery with my neighbour's wife. When I love my neighbour, this is obvious, when I love my neighbour, I won't murder him or her. Or steal from them or covet what is theirs. It's exactly what Jesus said when he was asked to summarise the law. He said the summary of the law is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. Love God and love neighbour. That is at the heart of God's law. You see what's going on here? So keeping God's law doesn't save me, doesn't make me right with God because I can't keep God's law. Not without the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in me. But once I am saved, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. He gives me the desire to love and he gives me the power to love and he gives me the power to live out that love. And he says, then keep the law in a loving way. And that's why for the Christian, God's law can't be put on one side. That's why I think Paul says here in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And again, you see, this is what it means to be a living sacrifice. We saw last week that the gospel motivates me to want to give my whole life to Jesus Christ, to live out my whole life. What does it mean to do that? What does it mean to be spiritual? To keep on loving by obeying the law. Now, that's not nebulous, is it? That's very practical, very down-to-earth, very nitty-gritty. And again, when we live that way, it's a very powerful witness to the gospel. 
It is a compelling thing when outsiders come among God's people and see us loving others as we should. Now, we don't always do it, but the more we do this, it's a very powerful witness. So what is my spirituality going to look like? It's going to mean me being a submissive citizen. It's going to see me be loving my neighbour. And thirdly, the third point, it means being a decent Christian, verses 11 to 14. Now, look, that heading sounds a bit weak, be decent. But uh, I've taken that word decent from verse 13, where it says, let us behave decently. In that sense, be decent Christians. You see, here in chapter 13, we've seen how we're to work out our spirituality in the nitty gritty of the world. How we're to obey the authorities. How we're to love our neighbours, everyone around us. But when we do that, when we live in the world, we can easily become absorbed by the world. I, I find I get, I get easily absorbed in something. I got absorbed in preparing this sermon. Completely lost track of time one morning this week. Suddenly looked at my watch and I thought, golly, is that the time already? That's great, isn't it? I'm, I, I'm so pleased that you allow me to do this job full time. What a joy that is. Well, Paul here says, verse 11, understand the present time. And he says, because you can easily get absorbed in what you're doing, he says, it's time to wake up, verse 11. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. The day that Paul talks of here, of course, is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is pointing to the time when Jesus will return, not as he came at Christmas time as a baby, but coming in all his power. The point is this, it's very easy to nod off as Christians, to take our eye off the ball, to get sucked into all manner of other things that are simply not helpful to us as Christians. And that is going to happen when we get our hands dirty in the nitty gritty of life. So right at the end here is a kind of wake-up call. It tells us to wake up, to get up, and to get dressed, verse 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's a call to decent living. Not to be thinking how I can gratify the desires of the sinful nature, but to be thinking, verse 12, Jesus is going to be returning one day soon. And so, verse 13, I must behave decently, not, verse 13, in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So this demands that I ask, Christian here tonight, as you look at this list in verse 13, where do you need to start shaping up? Is it in the area of drink or sex? Or are you a dissenter, always challenging authority? Does jealousy grab you and and drive you? In in September last year, I became one of the 1.1 billion Facebook users on the planet. And when I did, many of you asked me to be your friend. How kind. I never knew I had so many friends. And so in the last four months, I found myself, myself able to have a window into the lives of many in this church family. Not because I wanted to look through the window, but because you said you wanted to be my friend. So every day I see what you're doing. <laughs> now, in many ways, it's been great fun and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. But I also have to say it's been an eye opener. 
For some of the comments I've read and some of the pictures I've seen have worried me. They suggest to me that Christian people in this church family have got absorbed in the world. Some of you have forgotten the time. Verse 11, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Now. You need to realise, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. You need to live differently. You need, verse 14, to clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, never mind clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking at some of the photos on Facebook, some of you just need to put more clothes on of any description. (laughs) Now, I know I make a joke of it, but it's serious. You see, this is how we work out chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the nitty-gritty of being a living sacrifice. This is Christian spirituality. Here is how to live out a life that is overwhelmed by the mercy and love of God in Christ Jesus. It means living differently, not weirdly, just differently. And as we do that, submitting to the authorities and by loving our neighbours and by being decent Christians, it will have a profound and positive impact on the world around us. When we live this kind of spirituality... In the everyday nitty-gritty of life, people will want to find out why we live the way we do. They'll want to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they do, they will hear the mercy of God and in time they will want to, hear, they will want to offer their bodies as living sacrifices and work out this kind of authentic Christian spirituality as well. So wake up. Get up. Clothe yourselves with this stuff. Living out in the everyday. That's Christian spirituality. And my friends, it is remarkably powerful witness in the world. Let's pray together. Let me just leave a moment of silence for you to make your own response. There might be something that, as you've read God's word this evening, you know that God has spoken to you about it. It's not that I've spoken, it's that God has spoken and he's convinced you and convicted you of something that needs to change. Well, why don't you, in the silence, bring that to the Lord now? Our Father, many of us last week were helpfully reminded and overwhelmed by the remarkable mercy that you've shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we started the new year wanting to be living wholehearted lives for you. Offering, as it says in Romans 12, our bodies as living sacrifices. And so this week, as we've seen more of what that will mean in the everyday Uh, ordinary things of life we pray you'd help us to obey what you've said tonight and to begin to change where we need to we pray you'd help us to change in the power of your spirit we pray that the change would be motivated by your mercy uh, that it would be flooded with love your love to us and our love for others and for you And we pray that as we live differently, it would bring glory to your name 
and result in many people wanting to live uh, for you as well and know about you. And so we commit these things to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.